As a young person, I think um, the second half of today's scripture was one that I committed to memory. I don't think it's in there anymore, so I'll be reading it. But it's one of those one of those verses that I remember from you know, like I don't know, third or fourth grade. This morning, we've been blessed by Jane Nelson sharing the message with our children, and then I think Curtis touched on it from upstairs. So. Um, I think it's pretty much in our head already, but I'll share it again. And we're going to hear from the Gospel of Matthew, the um, and I believe the 28th. Is that the last chapter? Right at the end, right at the end of the book of Matthew. And four verses, starting with verse 16. But when I get to uh, 18, this is the part that was in my head, or verse 19, but we'll begin with 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here, beginning with verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember... I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the scripture this morning. So today is Trinity Sunday. And uh, the lectionary brought up this very familiar verse that we've, we, as Karen pointed out, we've kind of uh, brought up several times today, which is great. And I suppose the reason why today's text is chosen on Trinity Sunday is because it has this uh, formula uh, that we use at baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, pointed out here, kind of brings up all persons of the Trinity, which uh, kind of happens. And it's one of the rare cases, actually, in the Bible where you find uh, anything that remotely comes near any kind of Trinitarian thinking. And that's because when the Bible was written, they hadn't come up with the Trinity yet. Right? This was something that they came up with later. And you're hard-pressed to actually find uh, evidence necessarily that this was kind of how they were thinking. Now, don't get me wrong. The New Testament writers were kind of wrestling with some ideas. They were trying to figure it Because there is this problem the early church had to deal with. In, and they began to debate uh, very early on who is Jesus in in uh, in the biz we call this discussion Christology so Christology became a big important uh, discussion among the early theologians who exactly was Jesus what was Jesus's status was Jesus God was Jesus a God was Jesus a demigod some kind of lesser God or was he was he just some guy wandering in here's a clue they never they never thought he was just a guy <laughs> nobody thought he was just a guy in fact they had more trouble with the fact that Jesus was a person than they did with the fact that Jesus was deity after a few years uh, after Jesus's resurrection they 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 much preferred to deify Jesus than they did to humanize uh, Jesus. And they struggled with this idea because, as good Jewish folks are, they were adamantly monotheistic. But if you have God, and then you have Jesus, and then you throw the Holy Spirit in there, it, co- it poses 
these difficulties for a, a rabidly monotheistic culture uh, to identify who exactly Jesus is in that. And this debate went on debated, uh, unsettled for a few hundred years until the Council of Nicaea began to stir up and they decided that they ought to settle down a couple of these controversies that have been going on. Not the least of which was this issue of Christology, this issue of who exactly was Jesus. And in 325, Athanasius of Alexandria, he stood up at the Council of Nicaea and stated that Jesus that I know as my Redeemer cannot be less than God. And he began, along with uh, Eusebius, to advocate for a statement within the creed that codified the notion that Jesus and God were, uh, were of one personage, or, or of one, not one personage, but one element. They were the same, that Jesus was God. And most importantly, the big issue was Jesus had been, had always been. And, and, you know, John tried to make the same case in the, in the issue of who Jesus was. John made the same case by pointing out, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this isn't quite, again, like I said, the New Testament writers didn't have the Trinity in their head, but uh, they were wrestling with this same issue. If Jesus was just human, then what do we do with with all this deified kind of things and if jesus was god what do we do with our monotheism and so john is kind of wrestling with some of that in his books now on the other side was this dude named arius who posed this one he's he stood up and he said if the father begat the son this is how theologians talk if the father begat the son he that was begotten had a beginning of existence and from this it is evident that there was a time when the Son was not. It therefore necessarily follows that he had, he had his substance from nothing. In other words, Jesus was created by God. And this, this made everyone so mad that, that's, that it was one of the reasons they called the council in the first place was to shut Arius up. And they debated this stuff and they argued, but ultimately with Athanasius and Eusebius who won and who, whose construct won out. And when they wrote the creed, they put it in the, in the statement, they put this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, monotheistic, right? The Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And in the original creed, they had this big tirade that came right after that, uh, condemning people who thought otherwise. <laughs> and basically saying, if you're with Arius, you are damned. Uh, and and they were serious about this stuff. Uh, this this is the kind of thinking. These arguments got people killed once uh, Christians came into power, and they started killing each other over theology. And it was the Cappadocian fathers who threw the Holy Spirit in there as they started to wonder. Okay, well, what about the Holy Spirit? What about the Holy Ghost? Uh, in their opposition to Arius and his followers, they insisted on a co-equal Trinity. That means everyone's equal. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All one thing. And he threw it into confusion and brought to... Oh, this is what Gregory of Nazareth in addressing the Arian controversy, he said this. This was the disease of Arius, who gave his name to the madness, and who threw into confusion and brought to ruin a great part of the church. He's not happy, in other words. Without honoring the Father, he dishonored what proceeded from him by maintaining unequal degrees in the Godhead. But we recognize one glory of the Father, the equality of the only begotten, and the one glory of the Son, and the equality of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that to subordinate anything of the three is to destroy the whole. And ultimately, the concept of the Trinity became orthodoxy in Christian thinking and has been codified in almost every Christian creed, both Western and Eastern, ever since. And of course, explaining the Trinity has always been a whole other story altogether, you know, trying to make sense of it. It was Augustine who offered us the simple illustration of a tree. The root is wood, the trunk is wood, the leaves are wood, all wood yet three different entities. I'm sure we've all heard the apple illustration, the skin, the meat, the core, one apple. And of course, St. Patrick on St. Patrick's Day offered us the the clover, which has uh, three leaves but one clover as uh, an illustration of the Trinity there. That's my Irish, that's my St. Patrick imitation. (laughs) Whatever the illustration, its complexity has not deterred us from an almost universal exception, acceptance of the concept. Almost all Christians at one time or another have just kind of accepted the Trinity, maybe because it was too complicated to argue about at this point. Now, I lay all this out not to bore you to tears or to show off my historical prowess. I wanted to give you a feel for the controversy around the Trinity because it is a great example of how we get theology in our Christian faith. Or our ways, theology again, is ways of thinking about God, as opposed to Christology, which is our ways of thinking about Christ. Right? Often we have a notion that these things were all told, that that they were all packed together and are the central ideas to our faith. And they're so obviously laid out in the Bible that they're self-evident. We don't even really need to talk about them because they're just right there. Uh, you know, all, of course we believe in the Trinity. Of course we believe in this because it's right there in the Bible. And if you just read the Bible, it's all there and all you need to do is believe. But what I think the, con- the Arian controversy and the struggle over coming up with the idea of the Trinity, which didn't come around actually and wasn't articulated until... Th- 360 something 363 some 363 years after jesus's life christianity the the one we celebrate today is not the christianity of the first century we wouldn't recognize it if we were to take a time machine and go back to the first century heck it's not even the christianity of the 18th century we wouldn't recognize christianity if we went back to to 1750 right our theology is born out of these debates, of these, these controversies, these struggles that we have. And the ideas about Jesus have evolved from almost the moment He began to preach up until now. 
the story is still being written. The gospel is still being shaped and honed. We still wrestle to understand what it all means. It's not all, it has never been wrapped up in a pretty package and just handed to us. The Bible itself took 300 plus years to decide what books go in and what books go out and why we might want to read them in the first place. And I, can, I guarantee you even now among biblical scholars it's debated about whether some books belong in the canon or not. Or which ones should carry weight. But Paul said this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part then I will know fully. And what he seems to be saying is that we don't have a perfect picture of things this side of heaven. Which means that there is room to wonder. Amen. Thank God. There is room to wonder, to question, to wrestle, to get frustrated, to dismiss to acquire, to explore. Even here, even at the last moment of Matthew, the la- Karen was right, this is the last phrase in the last book of Matthew, and a lot has happened. Jesus was crucified, Jesus did a bunch of miracles, walked on water, healed a bunch of people, declared Himself the Messiah, went to the temple, got arrested and crucified, rose again on the third day, disappeared from the tomb, then reappeared to a bunch of people, walked around, had breakfast on the beach, did a whole bunch of things, showed Himself to Thomas, showed Himself to the other disciples... Gave them a lot of things to think about. And then in this last few moments, he's ascending into heaven. And what does the Bible tell us? Some doubted. Some doubted. Now that takes a lot of cynicism. That that takes a lot of, of skepticism. To stand there looking at Jesus in all of Jesus' glory, getting ready to, to take the last train to heaven, and someone standing there going, well, I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty pretty impressive and all, but uh, I'm still I gotta think this over a little bit. I gotta think it through. See, even then, some still doubted. God bless them. And Matthew said, We ought to we ought to include that. Tell them that some doubted. Because you know what? It's okay. Because we see a mirror in a mirror dimly. It's not all going to suddenly make sense to us. I think that's one of, the, one of the tricks we've been given. And it's a trick, it's something that us preachers do in order to hang on to power. Is that we tell you absolutes about life. And shame on us. We tell you absolutes. God said it. You ought to believe it. That settles it. We say things like that. And your job is to nod and say amen. And I don't think that's true. That's just not the way it has worked. We have had to look at those wonderful words of life. And I believe the reason we're reading the Bible still is because they are wonderful words of life. It's not because of who said it. It's because of what it says. 
And when we read that, we, we can still go, oh, I wonder what that means. And, and what does this mean for me? And is Paul really saying what I think he's saying? And if Paul is really saying that, I don't like it. I'm going to have to wrestle with that a little bit. Questioning is healthy. We can look at Paul's thoughts about women in worship and we can think, wow, that's way off. That is way off. We can look at ancient writings of Arius and think, hmm, maybe he had a point there. Maybe he had a point about all that. It's healthy. Debate is good. Having to work out our beliefs in fear and trembling, it makes for a stronger faith. We can look at texts about homosexuality and acknowledge that the people who wrote the Bible didn't know what they were talking about in regard to that question. It really wasn't in their scope. It's not the same conversation that we have today. We can question. We can debate. We can work it out. It's mindlessly accepting everything that is fed to us is what gets us in trouble. That's what really causes trouble for the church, for Jesus, and for each of us. And the same is true of mindlessly rejecting faith. Those who look at select concepts and then reject the whole of Christian thought based on, say, God is so violent in the Old Testament, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I mean, that's lazy. That's kind of lazily dismissing all of it instead of wrestling through How do I come to understand a loving God in the midst of some of these very troubling texts? Don't be lazy. Wrestle with that. Argue with God about it. Get mad about it at least, but do something with it. Don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's good that we are shown both in the Bible and in our own history that Christianity is something that is going to be an ongoing shape. Something that we continually work on and work out. Just like our baptism this morning. Baptism isn't the end of something, it's the beginning of something. And that something is wrestling with what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ the rest of your life. And I guarantee you, if you're like me, you spend the rest of your life going... Doubting, wondering, wrestling, hoping you're right, hoping you're not wrong, praying to you know not not really wondering uh, you know wondering what's going to happen when we die and and never really feeling absolutely certain about it, but knowing that your faith in Christ makes you better. And having faith that as you continue to grow in who Jesus is in your life, you will become that which you are destined to become and you want to become. The other thing I wish to say about the Trinity is that at the end of the day, who cares? Really? You know, these guys, I, if, if I were to... You know, I, there, I, could have, I could have spent three hours talking about this argument between Arius and Athanasius and Eusebius and all these other guys. They sat around months at a time writing volumes 
about different wording and things. What a luxury. What a luxury to sit around and think about is, is Jesus God or is Jesus not God? At the end of the day, does it really matter? All I know is that when I listen to what Jesus is saying to me, my life goes a lot better. I'm heading in a better direction. I like what Jesus has to say about the world, and I pray that the world becomes what Jesus hoped it became. It, my hope is what I find in there. I don't care if he was just a guy or if he was God on high. It doesn't matter to me at the end of the day. Most of the things that people, people were ready to kill over these things. They're just not important in the grand scheme of things. Thank God we've come around to recognizing that. Thank God we gathered here aren't killing each other over these things. People with cancer don't care about the Trinity or that it's Trinity Sunday. Young people who can't have children don't care about the Trinity. Families dealing with wayward teenagers could care less about Arius and Athanasius. A couple facing divorce. The guy who lost his job. The woman who lost her father. None of them care whether or not it's Trinity Sunday. At its best, what our theology can do is help us access that which is life-giving and hopeful. Amen? I hang on to the theology of the Trinity, and I'll tell you why. Not because I can't imagine another construct to be equally as legitimate. If you don't believe in the Trinity, I don't care. That's fine. <laughs> you know, I believe you can love and honor and follow Jesus the rest of your life and dismiss the Trinity. There, you got my permission. Go ahead. But here's why I hang on to the concept is because it helps me relate to who God is. The Trinitarian concept of God is less about power, and that seemed to be what these yahoos back in the third century are talking about, but more about how God relates to me. Quite frankly, if any theology doesn't come back to how we relate to God or how we relate to each other, then it's useless. But let's talk about how this relate, helps me relate to God. God as a power of creation lets me feel that there is something more than just what I perceive or, or experience here. But there's something more. There's something bigger than myself out there. And that thing is God. The creative nature of God. And it helps me to understand that there's something, even when the world feels out of my control, but there is something in control. Someone in control. God as the incarnation of Christ gives me a lens through which I can relate to the world and try to understand it and function within it. Why do I love Jesus? Because Jesus helps me make sense of this senseless world. Amen? That's why I love Jesus. And I've, I've chosen to follow Jesus. And these three who came into the baptismal waters have said to you and me and the rest of the world, you know what? Jesus is my lens from now on. The world I'm going to make sense of, I'm going to make sense of through looking through the, the lens of Jesus Christ and following the teachings of Jesus Christ. And just maybe when we do that, just maybe when we follow the teachings of Jesus when I follow the teachings of Jesus, just maybe the world might be a better place even a little bit. Amen? That's why I follow Jesus. Not because Jesus is God. Not because Jesus isn't God. Not because Jesus was a prophet. Not because Jesus was good looking. I follow Jesus because Jesus helps me make sense of this world. 
And God, as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it gives me a connection, not just to God, but to each and every one of you. That spiritual pull that we have one to another and the acknowledgement that in, in, if we are children of God and we each have that Spirit of God within us, that Holy Spirit, then we are inextricably connected one to another. And when my brother falls, I fall with him. When my sister hurts, I hurt with her. I cannot prosper while you suffer and fail. We're in this together. That's what the Spirit says to me. And so I I don't want to dismiss any of these aspects, affects, personages, whatever you want to call them. I don't want to dismiss any of them because they help me connect to God and connect to you. I need all of it. It all falls apart. So on this Trinity Sunday, we are invited to join the theologians over the millennia and to wonder What are the real important parts of my faith? And how do I, how do they relate to my theological construct? And if you need permission to question, to doubt, to wonder, to to throw things out and bring things in, you have my blessing. Tell them Pastor Curtis said it was okay. Go right ahead. If you need to debate, my door is always open. I'm happy to wrestle with things with you. What I don't often do is give you an answer. I know sometimes people come to my office and go, what is this about? And they're disappointed when I go, I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) Or if you just need to not worry about any of it and be still and know that God is God then that is all good as well. Yet faith is an active thing, and it is my prayer that we all continue and progress in our journey of discovery together as the church. Let us pray. Great and loving God, thank You so much for all the ways You relate to us as God who is our spiritual loving Father. As God who is Jesus the Son, the incarnation of all of who You are. The person who we follow. And God is the Holy Spirit within us that ties us to You and to each other. God, we thank You in all the different ways You can be described and perceived and received. May we continue to not shy away from wrestling with who You are but allow us to be honed by the struggle. We ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.